Good afternoon, my AOWs, back with another episode, and let's make this intro short and sweet, because I've got a great episode for you. I interviewed Suzanne Salinger. She's an 80-year-old bombshell. She wrote the book Sidelined, How Women Manage and Mismanage Their Health. And we uncover everything from why did you take that medication? Why did you have that surgery you felt that you didn't need? All right, without further ado, here we go. Welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. Welcome. I am so excited, Susan, to have you on the show today. We're going to be talking about your book, Sidelined, which I was lucky enough to get a copy of and begin reading through. And as someone who takes care of women and helps them make medical decisions, I'm so excited to interview you and have you on and hear a little bit about your story. So welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And I and I was excited that you use TikTok. So do I. And so <laughs> I I had find TikTok so fun. Like it, I mean, I it it is. It's really so fun. Tell uh, the listeners of my show a little bit about you, and I want um you to tell the story you told me that really kind of changed things for you before you wrote the book. Okay. Well, I can tell you a little bit about me. I'm 80 years old and I'm a grandmother. I have four grandchildren. I have a cat and a dog. Dog is named JD, JD Salinger, if you get it. (laughs) And um, what else? But the reason I wrote the book was, I was saying I, I had a very unfortunate experience where I agreed to a surgery that I knew I didn't need. This was many, many years ago. But the doctor, I was on hormones for, I don't know if it was menopause, menstruation, I have no idea anymore. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the doctor had switched hormones and said, here, here's some new ones, they'll be better for you. So, you know, of course, I said, sure, why not? And then it turned out I had some vaginal bleeding. So I said to the doctor, listen, let's go back on the old hormones. And he disagreed. And after a bunch of tests, et cetera, said I needed some exploratory surgery. Mm -hmm. And while I did push back a little bit, um, I got scared and he was scared for me. And so I agreed to it. And before I knew it, there I was lying on the gurney, you know, being wheeled into the operating room, furious at myself, just furious. Anyway, had the surgery, nothing was wrong. And I was I wasn't angry at the doctors, I was saying earlier, because really, if he'd been right, he would have saved my life. I know he was looking for ovarian cancer. But he wasn't right. And and I was. I could have waited a week. I wouldn't have died within the next hour, whatever it was. So I certainly could have waited. And then I just let it go. Life goes on. My kids were young, whatever. But then many, many years later, I retired. My husband and I were in business together and we sold our business. 
And I went back to school because I have a lot of energy and retirement and I did not get along. <laughs> I, I told my family I was driving them crazy. So I went back to school and took some anthropology classes. Mm. And there I ended up doing a, pro a project on hysterectomies, women who had had hysterectomies. Mm -hmm. And much to my surprise, they too had many of them had agreed to the surgery, even though they didn't think they needed it. And mm. of course, that triggered my memory. Yeah. So then I began to wonder, you know, how do women make medical decisions? Why, why do we do this to ourselves? Yeah. So I interviewed a bunch of women and found five or six things that as women, we all do, or many of us do, regardless of our particular disease, and wrote the book. The book is really about women's behavior, not particular illnesses. It, it's yeah. not a book on how to live with diabetes or something like that. It's a book on how to behave when you get a diagnosis. I want to ask you a question that you said before you were being wheeled into surgery, you felt so angry with yourself. Yes. Why? Because I knew I didn't need the surgery. I had rushed into it. I got, I mean, he scared me and I was scared. I mean, I don't want to have ovarian cancer either. And I, right. I just, I, I had options that I didn't explore. And, and maybe that's really good for this audience to hear mm -hmm. because I really, I could have waited a week or two. I certainly wasn't going to die. As I think I said in the next week or hour or what, I mean, that was silly. I could have mm -hmm. gone off the medication, gone back on the old one and seen if the bleeding stopped. And I yeah. know it would have, because that's exactly what we did yeah. after the surgery. I know. And I didn't, I didn't get a second opinion. There were all kind. I should have gotten a second opinion. I should have waited. I should have looked up and researched my symptoms. Everything I say in my book that as women we should, or as patients, we should do for ourselves. And I did none. This is a book of you know, <laughs> you do what I say, not what I, did. I do. <laughs> you know, I know women have had that experience so many times because as a clinician who sees women primarily in that 45 to 55 year old age range, inevitably they've either had something happen to them, be it in a pregnancy or an episiotomy or a postpartum condition, uh, or just that nagging sense that they didn't need that biopsy. I have heard this so many times, and I bet it rings true for women who are listening. And so I want to go through those, those things that you found of what goes into our decision, medical decision-making, how do we end up on the other end or how have we historically ended up on that side of that frustrated before being wheeled into the operating room? And then again, kind of go through the, the, those things of you, what else can you do? And I think anthropology is so fascinating, especially because looking at it from the women's lens, and then you took this medical lens. So cool. So anyways, without further ado, tell me <laughs> what are the, what are the five things? And I know you're going to want to sit with each one for a minute. So what, what are your, what's your number one? Well, I think the first thing that women do, and I, I think it's a problem is that we put ourselves last. And what happens, I'll get to even a little more description in a minute, but the problem with that is that a minor problem can become a major one if we let it go. There was a fun study done, <laughs> I'm laughing already, there was a fun study done where they asked women to prioritize, you know, five items, what would they put first? So first we take care, what would they take care of first? First we take care of our children, then we take care of our pets, I loved that. <laughs> then we take care of our families, you know, elderly 
elderly parents, that kind of thing. Then we take care of our significant others. Mm. And finally, we take care of ourselves. Ooh. So we really put off take making that doctor appointment. And we just put ourselves last when it comes to our health. And that's not a good thing to do. There was another, it's, it, this is, a, a, I think it's a fun study, but it really wasn't because uh there was a, the American Heart Association, I think, or AARP, one of them, asked women what how, if they thought they were having a heart attack, how many of them would call the paramedics? And half of them said they would not call paramedics because they didn't want the, the paramedics to see their messy house. Oh, so no. that, again, is putting your house. I mean, can you imagine putting your of house course. above yourself? Well, so, I was going to say the answer is because they didn't want the paramedics, they didn't want to be embarrassed when they got there and it was nothing, right? But, but no, I could see true. both ways. That's true. That we're so, that's going to lead me into number two, which is women hesitate to get second opinions. And th mm -hmm. this is in some ways the most important chapter in the book. Please get second opinions. You know, we're socialized as women. We're socialized to play nice. We don't want to be rude. We don't want to hurt the doctor's feelings. We don't want to be embarrassed, like you said, that it turns out to be nothing, that we have all the reasons why we shouldn't, you know, really get a second opinion. And I think that what I didn't realize until I did my research, and you can certainly, you know, correct me if I'm saying it wrong, but there's about 20 or 30,000 different diseases out there, many of which have the same symptoms. So I think really for a doctor, I mean, sure, some disease, uh, some diagnoses are obvious. If you break your leg if, and you go in and you say your leg hurts, the x-ray shows it's broken, that does, that's, you don't have to go to medical school for that. But so many of them are, are really, the symptoms are similar, the diseases can be so 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 similar particularly autoimmune diseases sometimes there's no definitive tests that a doctor can run to really help clarify what it is the patient has and i think it can be sometimes for a doctor like looking for a needle in a haystack and we see what we expect to see i was fascinated to read that the same symptoms can appear will appear like a stomach problem to a gastroenterologist, stress to a psychologist, joint pain to a rheumatologist. So it's really important to get a different perspective and to get that second opinion. And I never go to somebody in the same office. I go to somebody with different training because I'm asking for a different perspective. Does that make sense to you? Oh my gosh, I love that. And it is true that a lot of women do feel so, so a lot of people see me for a second opinion and okay. they'll say, you know, gosh, I, I just don't want so-and-so to be, you know, mad at me or upset with me or I'm right. I, right. You know, and there, there is so much that women, we have so many big feelings and that's okay. Right. That's how we are. And that's how we communicate. We use our feelings, but these wires do get crossed. And I always say, you know, just for anyone who's listening, who is, isn't a practitioner, we, uh, I, I, I'm going to assume most doctors would be happy to have you have a second opinion. I always say, if you want a third opinion, please, because sure. you are the CEO of sure. your own body. And there's so much medical knowledge. One doctor cannot hold all of it in. And someone might see it from a different lens or have a, you know, I'm an internist, not an OBGYN, et cetera. That's just such a great point. Yet women still feel so disloyal to their doctor. That's exactly right. By getting a second opinion. Yeah. One woman that I interviewed said to me, she feels like if she asked for a second opinion, she's like taking her ball and going home, you know? <laughs> 
And I said, no, that isn't true. And another reason that I think most doctors would welcome a second opinion is compliance, getting women yeah. or patients and men too, to, to do what they're told and follow the recommendations or instructions is tricky. So if a patient hears two or three times that, yes, this is what you have, they're totally con more, much more comfortable with their diagnosis and are much more likely to follow through. What with, a good with, point. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's just so important. I think you're right. I never thought about that from that angle of even hearing the same opinion again yeah. can be very reinforcing. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I found, and some of this stuff really did surprise me, is that women talk to doctors differently from how men do. Mm -hmm. We're much more emotional. We're much more feeling oriented. Mm -hmm. They, uh, women, male cancer patients and female cancer patients each wrote a letter describing their symptoms. And these letters were given to, I don't know if it was students or interns. I mean, it doesn't matter. But they were able, the, the doctors, the students were were able in about over 60% of the cases to know which were written by women and which by men. The women's were much more emotive and the men's were much more objective, much more succinct. They kind of stuck to the facts. And, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody. When I go to the doctor, I tell the whole story, how I felt about it. My husband thinks this, my kids think that, et cetera, et cetera. I don't really stick to the facts. And what can happen, I think, is that sometimes my physical symptoms get caught up in my emotional ones. And we sort of, can, it's easy, it makes it easier to lose sight of the real problem, which is what I went in there in the for in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I, I did read several studies that this is one reason, a small reason, but one reason women are more apt to get a psychological diagnosis than a man is. I mean, there are other reasons, but that's definitely, we contribute to it, to, to so to speak. I know. It, it's, it's very interesting that you say that because uh, since I only see women I'm so used to understanding this language of speaking in terms of feeling, um, but I, 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 I definitely, I don't know the right way to say it, but there, there's almost like probably a language barrier between a woman mm -hmm. speaking to potentially a man, right? Who likes, to, you know, women communicate as a way of solving problems and men try to just throw you an answer to solve a problem. Right. And there certainly could be some cross communication there, uh, you know, and it's just, it's, it's just, just kind of a part of nature. It, it, very it, important. It's a gender thing. I mean, it, it truly is. It's a socialization or cultural yeah. issue. Yeah. Um, Wow. And that was just number two, or did that get into number three? I think that was three. <laughs> but who's counting? <laughs> who's counting? Well, I, it's funny because on my show, I love to count. I'll be like, I'm today we're doing three things. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> well, we talked about putting others, taking care of others before taking right. care of ourselves. Right. And um, we talked about not getting second opinions. Right. Right. Um, right. And so did we spill into number three? It's, yeah, number three is that there's medical crosstalk. Number three is that ah, we do differently. Yeah. And we really do. I mean, even with, with my husband, I mean, he would go in and say, I have a sore throat. I would go in and say, I don't have a sore throat and it interferes with this. And I'm, it, it only hurts when I swallow sometime. I mean, I'd go on and on, <laughs> I mean, you know, same sore throat, but just a different conversation style. Yeah, And I think, you know, that's important. But on the other hand, which is fascinating to me, because we talk about our emotions 
really when we describe our symptoms, but number four is that we ignore our emotions when we get a diagnosis or a treatment recommendation. Mm -hmm. I found so many, particularly with many of the women I interviewed who had had um, hysterectomies, they, they didn't occur to them that they would feel depressed. One woman said she asked her doctor 35 questions about her hysterectomy, all technical. I mean, she said she probably could have performed the surgery herself <laughs> and it never occurred to her that she would be depressed. Yeah. And so I think it is really important that when you get a diagnosis and you get a treatment to find out everything you can about it, because otherwise, what happened is when they felt so depressed, they thought something was wrong with them. Um, Everybody gets a hysterectomy. Why am I so depressed? Yeah. They didn't realize that other women are depressed as well. They never did their research. Yeah, what a big topic that is. Um, I, I certainly see this happen all the time, all the time. You know, again, I said that at the beginning and I'm saying it again because I, as you're talking, I feel it. And I'm sure as my listeners are listening, if it wasn't them, it was your friend or your sister or your mother right, who right. had a procedure that that just you weren't totally walked through or totally prepared. And anyone could prepare you for the risks and benefits of the surgery or why they're doing it, but not what happens after that. And gosh, especially with female reproductive organs and the fact that women uh, have big feelings and we speak with our emotions, this is all so true. Um, it's so, so true. And, and, and once you have that surgery, there's just not a lot of going back. <laughs> you just oh, cannot yeah. get it back. Right. right. Um, and yeah, I think that was that feeling before you got wheeled into the operating room of like, wait a second, I am not. I'm not fully comfortable with this anymore, but I am at right. the point of no return because there's right. a mask and anesthesia going on my face. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, I, I lost my train. I started to say something. I forgot what I was going to say. Mm. But I think it's just really important to get the whole, the big picture. We Sometimes we go in as I did without thinking about it. and Or we end up only asking, like, like this woman I interviewed, we only ask about the physical repercussions and we don't ask about the emotional ones. And you're, you're, you're making a decision with half the information. Um, in fact, just to make my point a little bit clearer and a kind of a cute way that our minds and bodies are so connected. They did some studies, I love this, where they took two groups of students and ushered them into two different rooms and they gave one group of students hot coffee and one group of students iced coffee. And then they gave each each student group of a, a fictitious biography or something about a person. And the group with the hot coffee and so it did thought the woman the the patient was warm and fuzzy the person the, the students with the cold coffee didn't like the person neither <laughs> as well so our body really influences yeah. how and what we think yeah. and just to to go to go backwards a minute it's a different different researchers but same format they took two groups of students they put one in one room they put one in the other group uh, the second group in a second room and they asked the first group to write about a time when they had felt socially rejected and the second group was to write about a time they felt socially accepted well the group that wrote about feeling rejected judged the temperature of the room to be five degrees colder hmm. than the that felt socially mm -hmm. accepted so our body influences our mind our mind influences our body so you can't just ask what are the emotional repercussions or what are the you want to know both yeah and I think that that's really an important important statement 
I do. I do too. And I think these experiments that, that, that have so beautifully done, you know, in many years and, and reproduced are so crucial in, in, being able to justify in a space like this, why everything inside lined actually is biologically really true, truthful and important. Um, Oh my gosh. Cause this is stirring up so much for me. I have had patients who've had um, mastectomies or breast reductions or mastectomies prophylactically and just deeply, deeply regretted it, put them into deep spirals of depression. (laughs) And I think what an, what an amazingly important topic for, for people to listen to. Um, what was number five? What's the next thing on this list? We are well, the oh. next thing um, was just, I really talked about drugs, women, uh, you know, medicinal drugs, I mean, prescriptions. Mm-hmm. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. Because mm-hmm. uh, women are prescribed more drugs than men are. Mm-hmm. And there's some good reasons for that because we do suffer from more diseases. We have suffered from anxiety and depression, which are, you know, more easily treated by drugs. Men, men have other issues. But I think that we really need to be careful about the amount of prescription drugs that we take. And I think we really need to ask questions. And I do want to talk about asking questions for a minute. Um, yeah. I hope everybody has a pencil. <laughs> <laughs> Get your pencils out right now, girls, or that notebook on your iPhone right, if you're right, walking. Exactly, exactly. Because one of the things you really want to do when you get a drug, uh, when you are given a prescription, is to find out the clinical name of it so that you can go home and look it up. And I'll tell you a personal story about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a pain in my thumb, which was it was bothering me. And because I was writing this book and I'm slightly neurotic anyway, I decided it was probably thumb cancer and I better go to the hand doctor. So, okay. I go to the hand doctor and she did the x-ray. It turned out to be arthritis, which is all right, no big deal, but my thumb hurt. So she gave me some medication for the thumb. And I said, well, you know, my husband recently passed away and I'm on Lexapro for depression. Will there be any interaction between the two drugs? And you always want to know that. And she said, no, not at all. You're just fine. Well, again, because I wrote, I was writing this book, I go home and I look up Lexapro and I look up whatever drug she got me. And she was more or less right. But it turns out that 1% of the people do have an interaction and it can lead to a brain bleed. So I'm thinking to myself, there's a 99% chance it won't happen. But if I'm in the 1%, do I really want to take a chance of a brain bleed versus a semi-painful thumb? So I threw the medicine out because there was no comparison. I mm-hmm. still had nine other fingers, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, the arthritis went away. It doesn't bother me at all. So I did make the right decision. But I think it's so important to weigh the risks and the benefits of each medication you take and their interaction. Um, I think that that's a critical thing to do. So that's, that's my, that's one of the things you need to ask. Another thing you can ask when you get a a prescription, and I always do, is what happens if I do nothing? Will this go away by itself? I think that's an important question. Mm -hmm. Or are there, is there another drug that you think might be more beneficial? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes a patient will go in and say, I I saw this drug on television. This is a typical thing. I don't know if it happens to you. You know, do you think that this would help me? And frequently the doctor will give you the drug you asked for. Again, because you're more likely to comply and take it than if he or she gives you a different drug. Has that ever happened to you? Do they do that? Do do people come in and say, I saw this ad and hey, mm. listen, 
Mm-hmm. Oh, oh yes. Very, very oftenly. And it can be for either I saw this, can I take this? Or I saw right. this and I'm nervous about this. And if you don't take the, if we don't, if we collectively don't take the time to make it make sense in the context for each individual person with their background and their other medications or why, or why not, it might be a good option for them without that contextual component, uh, there can be a lot of miscommunication. Right. Right. Well, you know, the United States and New Zealand are the only two countries in the world that allow drugs, prescription drugs, to be advertised to consumer, to huh. consumers. And it's extraordinarily successful. Is wow. I mean, well, and not only that, but <laughs> those drugs that are advertised to consumers sell nine times more than drugs that are not advertised. I mean, that's an amazing that's because I'm sure of consumer requests and you know, it's successful. And most, what's really fascinating, at least for me, was that most of the drug ads target women. Mm-hmm. If you'll notice, a lot of them have women protagonists and they have women with children because we'll do anything. We for, take care of our children first. Yeah. So if this drug is going to help me take better care of my kid, I'm more likely to want to take it. Mm-hmm. And women make about 80, over 80% of all of the health decisions, and purchasing decisions. Yep. Mm-hmm. So there's yep. a good reason for drugs to, to target us. Hmm. You know, that is fascinating. Right now it's, you know, the semi-glutides are certainly all the rage, which are the Ozempic and Wegovian weight loss medications, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I I was interviewed on, on hot flashes and cool topics podcasts. And it asked me about that. And, um, it is, it's, it's so fascinating. And I think a lot of TikTok traffic for those semi-glutides injectable medications that help weight loss. So you're getting it from, you know, some of the best kind of marketing, which is personal branding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What was the, what was the podcast? There's a book called hot flushes, cold science. Is that what you were on? (laughs) Yes. No, I was on a podcast called hot flashes and cool topics. Okay. 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 Yeah, exactly. And they had the, the, the host had asked me about semi-glutides kind of in this same topic about, um, p- women asking about medications or sometimes asking for medications, um, or, or the opposite of that is coming in saying, you know, I've heard about bisphosphonates and I've heard they're very dangerous and they're going to give yes. me cancer. Yes. So it, it, it's, it's funny because the consumerism goes both ways. And then to your point of they're mostly targeted towards women. I didn't really think about that until now. And I had no idea that we were one of two countries that can open market advertise drugs. It's amazing. It's amazing. Well, the last topic, and we're just about there, is is I really did a chapter on medical history because women's bodies have been so devalued and so Mm -hmm. demeaned. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to find out why f- women feel such shame around being ill, which we really haven't touched on. But I did find that most of the women were so ashamed. In mm-hmm. fact, I wanted to read you, and I actually marked this because I this is one of my favorite parts, and I haven't been able to read it because on any other podcast because it didn't fit. Go ahead. But in the I don't know if you know this in the Victorian period when women went into menopause, they thought it was because that their body almost exploded. And so Cornelia Bandy, who at 62 in 1763, was described as having been discovered mysteriously reduced to suit, is it soot or suit? I don't know how to say that, ash and bone in her own home. 
Her body was discovered as a heap of ashes, her legs and arms untouched with fatty moisture, clinging to the furniture, tables, and walls, penetrating the drawers. I mean, <laughs> can you imagine? I mean, they really thought that meant that that menopause was going to make you, I guess, blow up and explode. explode. I know. Isn't that? And then this I wanted to read. Oh, wait, don't let me lose my. Aha. That And this was in the 70s, the late 60s, early 70s. Somebody wrote that menopause is the end of womanhood. I mean, that's old. But the psychological equivalent of murder in the form of broken family relations and hatred between husband and wife is a common result of menopause. Medical statistics can never convey the staggering total of sheer misery Mm -hmm. inflicted upon such families. Mm -hmm. Mm. So... That one hits home because it, you know, it is not untrue, but it also is actually, it, 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 I mean, gosh, there's so much more about menopause nowadays. I I hope that we're talking about and that we're having a dialogue on and we're discussing how your body changes your sexual health, your mind, your bones, your brains, your heart, everything. But it is just, we are, our histories are so much deeper, so much more complicated, uh, right. so much more tumultuous than that of men. Um, right. Wow. Gosh, this is, uh, this is very, <laughs> I have yeah, a lot no, of feelings, history, Susan. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> but, and I think that it's dangerous in the sense that I think it sets us up to expect, I mean, I was dreading menopause, literally mm-hmm. dreading it. And for me, it was fabulous. I mean, I only talk about my own personal experience. Mm-hmm. My periods were always irregular, except if I went on vacation or wore white pants. That was when <laughs> I had been, there was no way for me to predict except that. And so when I hit menopause, it was fabulous because I didn't have the problem anymore. And I I did have some hot flashes, mm-hmm. but they, you know, it was a few bad hair days. I mean, it was no big deal. My mm-hmm. kids on the other hand, they're not sleeping. They're bitchy. They're you know all those other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. you just never know, but I think that it sets the stage for some discomfort. Yeah. And- you know, this is uh, there's so many good topics. I really recommend you guys read Susan's book sidelined. You can get it on Amazon. I'm going to put a link in the description, uh, the you. show notes for today, um, because you're going to find so much of yourself in at least one of these chapters, if not many, many, many more. And I think, you know, as women where we can ch- the best, we can't change that our bodies are more complex and we can't change that we're more cerebral and we can't change that, but we can change the narrative. We can change it within ourselves that life doesn't right. have to happen to us. It can happen, you know, as we are active participants, but I want to turn to you, Susan, and kind of say in your summation or your summary after writing the book and talking to so many women. And I just, I honestly thank you for this amazing work, incredible oh, body of work that you've been able to do. Thank you. <laughs> really? Do you, it's hard work. What do you think are the ways in which we can, well, I guess, you know, you've already kind of, I was going to say, what are your like action steps? What can someone do tomorrow? You've already kind of given us a couple of things, you know, like ask your doctor about your medications and I guess then maybe the question would be, what are some of the ways that we can actually shift our mindset for the longer term and not being sidelined about the decisions and medical decisions that happen, seemingly happen to us? 
I think there's a couple of ways. I think, first of all, that women need patients, really, not just women, need to prepare for the doctor visit. And by that, I mean, write down, I don't care if you do it on your phone or with a pencil, not, but I do mean not in your head, write physically, write down what you want to cover in the order you want to cover it. And that will help the, the, the office visit stay on focus. It keeps you on focus and the doctor. And I think that it's really important to repeat back what you've heard. That way you're sure that you heard correctly and that gives the doctor a chance to confirm any misunderstandings. Maybe the doctor didn't speak clearly. So it gives both of you a chance to make sure that you're on the same page. And I think another really important thing to do is to not introduce a new problem as you're ready, if it's telemedicine to hang up the phone or as the doctor's ready to go out the door. That's not a good idea. You won't get a good answer. There's other patients to see. So that's why another yet another reason to make the list. So I think those mm -hmm. things are critical. And mm -hmm. when you get a diagnosis, you want to know what else could this possibly be? And like with medication, you want to write down the clinical name so you can go home and do your research. Do your symptoms really fit what the doctor said? Are, is there a second possibility that maybe needs to be investigated? Not only a second opinion, but is there a second diagnosis that might be equally or almost equally appropriate? And there's a resource list at the back of the book, which I think, frankly, mm -hmm. not to unsell my book, but I think it's the most important part of the book. I really, it tells you how to do your research, how yeah. to read, see if a hospital, Cleveland Clinic, where I know you were, is fabulous for heart disease. Yeah, I don't know how it is for gynecology or Brigham Young may be good for this, but not for that. Hospitals mm -hmm. are rated, doctors are rated, medications, it tells you how to look it up. I've done all the research for you just and it's organized by topic mm -hmm. and it will really really help you because you really, don't want you, you yeah. really don't want to take a chance of a brain bleed when you just have a minor you know a minor sore thumb it's yeah. not worth it it's yeah. not worth it yeah well, you bring up so many good points and you remind me to 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 be a good clinician and a thorough clinician um and i think so much is shared decision-making between the doctor yes. and the patient. Yes. And that is something as a medical community, we should do better at this shared decision-making. Yes. Well, true. Susan, thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed connecting with you, meeting with you. You're so inspiring because thank I know you. so many of my listeners are in the throes of perimenopause or menopause. And, you know, to be able to um, just listen to how, beautiful you have uh, made your retirement it is oh, just so inspiring <laughs> and I hear you're working on book number two is that right I am indeed <laughs> the fact that I'm 80 oh well you know I'm gonna I'm anyway so I might as well <laughs> oh well you guys can find Susan's book sidelined in the show notes and I will also tag her on all of her social media channels and thank you so much um, well, and thank, thank you guys you. Yes. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, thank you, Susan, for being here. And I'll see you guys next week. Bye, everyone. Thanks again.
If I haven't already done so, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to my show. Consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. Also, if you love the show, your stars or a quick review could really help other women who are searching for information on menopause and midlife around the globe find this show. If you want to work with me, consider the Reclaiming Menopause Masterclass. The link for that is in the description to this show. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart for all your support, and I'll see you next week for a brand new episode.